Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Going VC podcast. I'm JJ. And I'm Rachel. And we're super excited to bring you all this episode. As a quick reminder, our goal of this podcast, as always, is to discuss a variety of topics as it relates to launching or accelerating your venture capital career. Before we begin, I want to give a quick heads up to our listeners. This episode was recorded last year, so some of the references are contemporaneous to late 2021. So Rachel, can you give us a quick rundown of what the listeners can expect today? Yeah. So our guest today is Heather Hartnett, who is a founding partner at Human Ventures. Heather talks about how Human Ventures operates as a fund, venture studio, and incubator, as well as breaks down how to think about founding a firm versus joining an existing firm the democratization of startups and how they assess founders, as well as what people should look for when looking to learn about venture. Yeah, this was definitely a super fun and information-packed episode. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Heather. Thanks so much. These episodes off with a little bit about the guest background their origin story, as it were. So could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. My name is Heather Hartnett, and I run a venture fund and startup studio in New York City called Human Ventures. And I am originally from the Midwest. I spent a lot of time out in the Bay Area. I came to New York about 12 years ago and have had a windy path started in venture and then went into tech. I actually found myself in New York in philanthropy and then kind of married the two and went into impact investing. And then I started Human a little over five years ago. And the New York ecosystem has just taken off and very excited to be in New York and investing in early stage companies from pre-seed to series A. Nice. That's awesome. I'm going to immediately turn around and ask if we can maybe dig into that a little more. Yeah, so definitely. one of the things that we've found really interesting with this podcast is that everyone more or less has a sort of unique story into venture. I think we've interviewed one guest who was like, yeah, I applied for like on-campus recruiting and this is how it went. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, everyone else had a really sort of interesting pathway into the industry and it's not something like medicine or law, but this is really kind of like, well, this is what you do. And these are the steps sort of thing. And your story, it sounds like it's just sort of a continuation on that. That all happened. I know. And when people say I have a non-traditional path into venture, I say, what is the traditional path into venture? It's really tough. I think now... Right. There are incredible universities like what you folks are doing and people coming out of school and, and much more sophisticated in their approach to coming into venture than when I first was exposed to it. But really, I think my story starts when I was pretty young. My dad, you know, my, my father's been an entrepreneur my entire life, and I never knew anything different than living the life of a family with an entrepreneurial father. And that's feast or famine. It's ups and downs. But what it does is really give you a passion for solving problems and critical thinking around how to tackle challenges. And so he was always a little bit ahead of the curve in where things were, where people were. He was early in voiceover IP before the internet was the backbone of, of most telecom. And he had a telecommunications business and we got into domain buying when I was 13 years old. And he used to say, here's the, the next real estate. It's digital real estate. So pick a domain and build a business around it. So I just always loved that muscle of building businesses. Fast forward, when I graduated college, he said, okay, well, what business are you going to start? I had no idea what that was going to look like. So I went out to the Bay Area, like a lot of 
people who were interested in business building in this early 2000s. And I had a family friend who said, well, if you want to like watch me rip apart business plans and, and meet a lot of entrepreneurs, come and do some work with us at this venture firm. And I didn't even know what venture capital was at the time, but it really planted a deep-seated desire for me to enable founders with capital. And I didn't even know what that was going to look like. So the reason why I had a really windy path into venture was just because there is no direct pathway into venture capital, or there wasn't at that point in time. So I went to go get some operating experience. And when I moved out to New York, it was a unique opportunity to work with the David Lynch Foundation. But what it did was show me these big trends because the David Lynch Foundation provided wellness modalities. So meditation for at-risk populations. It was taking meditation instead of medication. And this trend of well-being was really on the horizon. And that was 10 years prior to it becoming mainstream. But that's what you have to do in early stage investing. You have to look 10 years ahead, what's going to be in existence in 10 years, and then who are the right founders, who are the right visionaries to be able to bring that into existence. And so if you really boil down venture early stage specifically to its core, it's identifying trends and then identifying the right people who are fit to build the biggest businesses within those trends. That makes a lot of sense. And so I guess another thing, if I'm not mistaken, that you were maybe a little sort of ahead of the curve here is you had that one year experience sort of right out of college. And then if I'm not mistaken, your next venture experience is sort of founding your own fund. In between, I went to a fund called City Light Capital. And what was great at that point, that's an impact investing firm. And City Light is one of the premier impact firms that has been doing this for a very long time before it was kind of a buzzwordy type thing. And the partners there, Josh Cohen and Matt Cohen, they were so helpful in seeing where early stage venture was going. And we built a couple of businesses within City Light. And that started getting me thinking about incubating companies with early venture dollars as well. And so when I met my partner, Joe Marchese, who is a serial entrepreneur, he's one of those rare types of people who can build companies from square one and also sell them and be in a corporate environment and be able to navigate. So he, we call them altitude shifters. He can, he can go from 10,000 foot view all the way down to the ground. Really rare individual who shared a vision around the New York tech ecosystem. And he said, let's create a platform for builders to build together. And that's really how the conversation around humans started, which was, let's not just build another fund, you know, another firm. Capital is a commodity. How do we build a platform that really supports founders in the earliest stages of building and creates an unparalleled network to be able to give them an unfair advantage in doing so? So that's how human came about. Nice, nice. We'd love to hear a little more about your motivation there. Is the New York tech ecosystem just something you're really passionate about? Or what was your sort of motivation there to leaving City Light and founding your own fund versus, I guess, staying there or, or potentially, you know, joining another existing fund so early in yeah. your career? A large part of, I think, what makes a successful startup ecosystem is the concentration of founders building together and helping one another. And that's now much more of the case in New York and other ecosystems outside of San Francisco. And I think that's what really creates a successful innovation and startup ecosystem. So when we started Human Ventures, we saw that opportunity to make New York an even bigger hub of founders building together. There are so many industries in New York, and now they're becoming tech enabled. And so that's why we launched our studio. That's why we felt that New York was where the puck was going. And our core thesis is that if you bring exceptional founders together who are building valuable companies, they'll be motivated to help one another. And that's a multiplier effect that happens when a strong community forms. 
And then as anything that happens when you kind of hit a market need, things start to build off of that. So we started with a studio, which is really building from scratch. And then naturally we wanted to have a fund that could continue to fund the companies that we were building. And then we started to see a lot of founders who wanted to build. So that's when we launched our incubator program called Humans in the Wild. And Humans in the Wild is kind of the first of its kind. It's an entrepreneur in residence program where founders are building together as an equity-free program. It's a hundred day sprint, getting your business to you know a fundable state. And that was really designed for founders, not startup 101, but for founders who really wanted to make sure that they had a product that was needed and they can launch something in the most sophisticated way coming out of the gate with a community that was going to support them. That makes sense. So many questions to dive into about your work with Human Ventures, but just want to turn it over to Rachel and see if she's got any questions so far. Yeah, I think there's a lot we can dive into, Heather, but would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the thesis of Human Ventures and how you and your partner came up with it. I know that you all invest in the human needs economy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and why you all decided to focus on the human needs economy? Yeah, definitely. There are a few layers to our thesis and depending on who I talk to, you know, you kind of bring them out. So one is the studio concept, right? The actual building and coming together. So that's very unique. But my partner, Joe, had a background in media and advertising. And it turns out that advertising is actually a really unbelievable way to predict consumer trends and where people are buying their ads and what consumers are buying. And my interest in where the kind of social sentiment was going, meaning focusing more on those things that were human focused, right? So technology, I was watching technology was outpacing the human condition and people I knew would want to go back to some of the more basic human needs, healthcare, future of your livelihood and work, community-based businesses, because you wanted that sense of belonging, the care economy, things like this. So the thesis has been born out of where founders are actually building and then COVID just accelerated it completely. So our thesis around the human needs economy, one, yes, categories and focus areas that we're really excited about, but it also stems of what types of founders are building in these areas. And those are the types of founders that we want to build with. And the human first principle is really that what I was talking about, that you see the ecosystem in terms of reciprocity. You're helping one another and rising tides lift all boats. And that's a big quality that we look for in the founders that we invest in, because that'll naturally increase the value of the community that you're building. So just to sum up, the human needs economy to us in in categorical sense is right now, health and wellness, future of work, community. We're also very deep into women's healthcare, right? Specifically, that's a big nascent field. And these are going to be the next big trillion dollar industries. Worker well-being, something that people thought was completely woo-woo before the pandemic is now the number one focus for every employer across the United States, well, across the world. But this is now an opportunity for these businesses that are really helping humans instead of us being slaves to the technology. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for diving into that. And wanted to mention as well to all of our listeners, Heather pinned two really great articles that were published in TechCrunch last year called The Future of Work is Human. And you really dive into the thesis and and I thought it was great. And one excerpt from there is you mentioned that the last 10 years and in investing have been focused on nice to haves and you all at Human really believe the next 10 years of investing will be focused on the need to haves. Could you tell us maybe a, a couple examples of maybe some portfolio companies or just kind of why you all believe so strongly in that? 
Definitely. Our last cohort of founders in our Humans in the Wild program was all around health and wellness. And each founder had such a deep sense of purpose of why they were building what they were building because it was born out of a true need. And we've invested in healthcare, just bringing to light the challenges around infertility, around menopause, around postpartum pregnancy, conception, and then pregnancy, and then postpartum, you know, all those, those phases. And really, there's just been so little, not only research, but innovation in these areas. And so when you think about it, investing in these underinvested categories, there's both an economic opportunity that's there, which makes sense, right? That's what our fund model is. You want to make money in this, but it also is unearthing a lot of needs that have not been met. And I think it's just been born by a population who you grin and bear it. And there hasn't been a lot of solutions. And now we're looking through things that are analogous to what happened in the 80s with economic incentives. You know, women weren't even allowed to take out a loan without a male co-signer in the early 80s. So the change that has come about with financial freedom from women in the workforce is insurmountable. Now we're also looking at that to healthcare. We're looking at it in terms of flexible work hours. You know, it's not just female focus. I just think that that's a lot of where the white space is right now. We also have a company called Murmur. And Murmur makes a tech tool. It's completely a software technology platform, but they allow you to make agreements and contracts within your culture of your company so that you're really explicit about your values and your culture and your building. You know, if you have to have a remote workforce right now, how are you increasing communication and building that trust and community and culture around your employers? So we're looking at the tech enabled solutions to be able to help bring the, the human side into the workforce. So those are some examples of healthcare and future of work. And when you really start to dive into the companies, you say, is this a nice to have or is this a need to have? Is this something that might be a flash in the pan or is it something that's really increasing the value of everyone's day-to-day life? Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. And is that one of your due diligence questions that your team asked yourself when you're looking at opportunities that come your way? Is that kind of one of the first questions, a nice to have versus a need to have? Absolutely. And yeah, does it fit our brand and does it fit our thesis in that way? One new area that we haven't put out a thesis piece on yet, but we've been thinking a lot about it is this concept around identity, around when the next generation, Gen Z's coming of age and their purchasing power is really important. What do they identify with? How do they identify? And how does that change the way that we interact with the world? How does that change with our, how we interact with healthcare, with products, with connecting with one another? I think it's really interesting to pose a social change, you know, a social paradigm shift, and then back into what the world looks like and what types of companies thrive in that type of, of world. Those are the fun thesis-driven exercises that we do internally. And then as we look at companies coming down the pipe, we can map against that. Does this really make sense for our human thesis? That's really cool. So speaking of diligence there, one of the things we sort of talked about was about how you need new signals to evaluate What's a fit for the fund and, and what sort of things you're looking for? One of the things you mentioned is that you guys had a proprietary assessment tool or sort of different way of evaluating companies. I would love for you to just dive into that a little bit if this is uh, something you can talk about. Yeah, and I'll just correct it more around bringing self-awareness to founders themselves. So in our incubation program, we have the opportunity to do some self-discovery. And 
we work with founder coaches to be able to connect with the founders and the personality testing is showing the founders where their strengths and weaknesses are. And it helps them with thinking about how to build out their team, their culture and hiring. Mm -hmm. And I think for far too long, we've put a lot of importance on where you go to school and what social networks you're a part of and what companies did you start working at? So you have those types of networks, but people have not been thinking about what are the personality attributes that really actually propel founders that make a healthy founder, that make a healthy company, <laughs> that make a healthy culture, that create value. And so I think it stems from that. We say that a company can only grow as fast as the founder is willing to grow themselves. So I think it's important to work with the founder in the beginning to identify those strengths and weaknesses and where they need to hire for their blind spots. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So is this something that you guys use when evaluating which companies to take into the business creation platform or, or, yeah. or to invest in? Or is this sort of separate from that? Like once they're in, this is to help them get to the next level there. Yeah, it's the latter. We're not at a point where we can give a personality test to a founder and say, we're going to invest in you because you have this type <laughs> of personality. That gets pretty dicey. I think it does, though, allow for you to gain conviction in talented founders who might not otherwise have social virtue signaling that does get funding traditionally, right? right and right. so it allows you to, to really- grad who worked at Google for two years. Yeah, and look, that is a, a profile that has been proven to work and you know those networks work. However, I think that really good people who come out of Stanford who are great founders are great founders for other reasons too. And right. so I think you can cast a wider net. You can understand the profile of founder who works well with your type of investment thesis or investment partners. And then that creates the best possible partnership. And I think founders should really think about that. Why do, have you chosen the investors that you've chosen? It's not just the logo on their door. Right. But quite frankly, I think that because money is so abundant right now and everyone's trying to chase these deals, I think you really have to say who in the earliest stages of building your company, who is your trusted partner who's going to help you get to the next level, not who's the biggest name, because that's what matters in the beginning. That makes sense. And we'd love actually if we could expand a little more on that. You know, if you're putting yourself in the founder's shoes, what sort of things should they look for? You said a few times on this call, capital is, is, is increasingly becoming a commodity. What sort of things do you think they should look for in a partner, whether that's, uh, that's an investor or an incubator creation platform? Yeah, it's a great question. And every call that I'm on with founders, I always ask, what are you looking for in an investor? What types of investors are you looking for this round? Because there's always this power dynamic, right? Founders are pitching to investors. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're also interviewing the investor because this is longer than a marriage, right? Like right. you're going <laughs> to be in this partnership. And it definitely is not going to be all fluffy times. It's, it's going to get in the trenches. So what I think you should look for are what are the next milestones you need to hit with this capital, this financing that you're taking in? First of all, why are you taking in the financing? What do you need to hit? Can that capital help you get there in some way, in addition to just the money. Like money is not just money. It's, I mean, sometimes you have to just take investors who, you know, are, are willing to be supportive, but I do think you should look, there's too many funds, there's too many early stage funds to not think about who has either a talent network or access to customers, or even just insights about strategy of how you're going to do your next raise. I just had one founder who asked me for independent board member suggestions, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail to get her the best board composition because I want to work for my equity that I bought, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing. And I, when we talk about human, one of the pillars is creating a brand that resonates with the next generation of founders. And I think that the founders of the future look very different from the founders of the past. They value different things and you should test that with your investors. And 
one practical thing is just what's the size of the fund and what stage are you at in your company? Because if you take money from a really large fund who's putting in a really early check, just kind of preserving optionality, it's going to be more detrimental to you in the end if they don't continue to fundraise for you. You know, they don't continue to give you capital. There's a signaling problem that happens at that point. So I would be very aware of what stage your business is at and what types of investors you want to take on at that stage. Nice. That makes sense. And not to continue going down just a single path here, but uh, you know, you mentioned something that I think is really interesting that you think you know the founders of the future are going to look a little different from the founders of the present, or I guess the founders of the past as well. And we'll love if you could just riff on this a little bit. What do you think the founders of the future will look like? And how is a human equipping itself to, to serve them? So it's harder than ever, I think, to be a leader in today's time. So signing up for building a company in the next 10 years and one that it grows as fast as the venture financing ecosystem wants it to grow means that you have to be a pretty, pretty aware founder to understand basically hiring hiring correctly, hiring a team that's going to maintain the social turmoil that's happening. You know, there's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of political navigation. There's a lot of ethical decisions. And as the company gets bigger and bigger, those have to be embedded in your DNA. So I think self-awareness is an undervalued quality for the last many, many years. If, If the company makes money, then that's the only calculus. But I think we've started to see that that doesn't work. Companies start to self-implode or they have to play catch up. And we've been talking a little bit about this kind of culture debt. In technology, there's this term of technical debt where you know you just you build as fast as you can and then you go and fix it later as you scale. But I think now we're seeing this culture debt where if you say, Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna hire as fast as I can now and then and then we'll become a diverse team later, or we'll think, you know, it has to be a part of your DNA if you really want to scale appropriately. So I think this notion of being a pretty well-rounded founder, but you don't have to be that just yourself. No one person feels that's self-aware, right? But you do have to have a support network around you that you trust and that you're not putting on a show for. And I think that's what's really difficult. And that's what we encourage our founders to do. Somebody who's not your investor, somebody who's not your employer or advisor, but you have to have a peer group. And really we see that, that founders will only really trust other founders (laughs) because they know. And I love that. So that's what we try to really promote within human is the peer group. Nice. So I could totally spend the whole afternoon continuing to go to <laughs> this train here, but I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel now. Yeah, definitely. I think you bring up a really interesting point, Heather, about founders and how challenging it is to be a leader in today's world. And would love to touch on the fact that you're a founder yourself. You mentioned earlier that you founded Human about five years ago. Could you tell us a little bit more about the experience of founding a firm and kind of building it up to where it is today? It's a great question. I'm working on a piece right now. I'm polling a bunch of the investors that I really admire, ones who have joined a big firm and ones who have started their own firm. I think these two profiles are so drastically different. They're two paths that are so drastically different and you're doing the same thing, investing, you know, in the outcome. I'm fascinated. I think that the reasons why people start their own firm, you know, it's very personal. For me, I wanted to create a brand, a culture, a new way of doing venture, a new way of company building really in the beginning, very grand plans that didn't exist. And so 
I was lucky enough to have a partner, Joe Marchese, who believed in me, said he would be my first check-in and then off to the races. Now, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I definitely don't think I would have done it. And it's easy to say that now once we've started gaining this momentum and it's kind of working, but it's a lot of sleepless nights. And if I thought about being able to join a firm that already had the capital raised and the investment thesis down and all that sort of stuff, it seems pretty easy. But I think it's, what's your personal goal? Are you really just looking to make the investments and you want to be in venture? Or do you feel that there is a white space for you as an investor to identify a totally different way of doing things. And I think in order to do that truly, you have to found your own firm. And we were talking about this, this DNA, this culture debt. I think firms that have been operating the same way for a long time, it's really difficult. It's like moving the Titanic. It's really difficult to move and be agile with the new opportunities. So yes, you have a lot of capital, but you also have to make sure that you're always hitting the refresh button and you're always innovating the way that you're thinking about where founders are building, or are you going to miss the next big wave? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Another thing I, I wanted to ask is, I know you are a co-founder of Transact Global, which is a community for emerging fund managers. Did this tie into the lack of resources that were there when you went to found human ventures, or is there any connection there? Yeah, I think I just did a piece in Forbes about the funding gap that we're experiencing in the LP community and the limited partner community. So as a manager, you have to raise money from limited partners, right? And traditionally, it's been big institutions like endowments and pensions and fund of funds and big institutions. And now there are so many firms and venture is a wide variety of stages that you're investing in. Some of the larger funds go back to raise funds tens of billions of dollars now. So that kind of dries up the capital and the allocations for this new emerging manager community. Call it anywhere from 10 to $200 million funds that are investing in early stages. And that's, by the way, that should be the number for your fund size. Your fund size should not be over a certain amount if you're investing the first $500,000 into a founder at the earliest stages of building companies. But we can get into that later. So what was starting to happen were all these folks were starting their own funds, but there's not a whole lot of capital that would be willing to take the risk, right? So I think that founders are 10 years in the future and LPs have to, by nature, be risk averse and they're 10 years in the past. And then emerging fund managers are kind of there to bridge the gap in between. And so you find yourself looking for capital sources that can be a little bit more flexible, a little bit more able to take that risk. And that's where a lot of family offices are filling that gap right now. So Transact Global is, yeah, we're about 245 female fund managers who've started their own firm. It's the most active, engaged support network I've ever been a part of. And we called it Transact because there were a lot of networks to kind of like for emotional support and things like that. This one was really, can we give each other practical insights for where capital was flowing into this asset class and how can we help each other increase the pie? So there wasn't this scarcity mindset that there might be one emerging manager that this big institution might take a bet on every two years. But instead, how can we really create an engaged community that if you're not a part of that, you're missing out on deal flow, you're missing out on where the LPs are allocating their dollars. So it's it's been a really fun, it's very peer-led. Everyone who's in Transact takes a, a role. We have a newsletter that tries to synthesize all of the things that we do. We have incredible speakers that come and talk to the, the group. We just did a, a media panel too. We had Alex Conrad and 
and Alex Wilhelm from TechCrunch, and they gave tips and tricks on when you're launching your fund, how are you supposed to talk to the media? And it's been really great. It's very fulfilling because it's it's a lonely endeavor sometimes. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Transact Global sounds really amazing. And I heard you mentioned there are 245 female fund managers a part of it, which is really awesome. Another topic we were thinking about diving into is something that's talked about widely, especially lately, which is DEI and venture capital. I think one of the latest statistics is that fewer than 10% of decision makers and VC firms are women. So love to hear that Transact Global is really trying to close that gap. But would like to hear a little bit more on your perspective of diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in venture capital, and maybe even how Transact Global is starting to close that gap. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think decision makers at venture capital firms, like even with all the media that we hear about the plight of women not getting funded and as female fund managers, but also female founders, firms with more than 25 million in assets under management are 88% male still. So for every female founder who's pitching their company product or service, they have a higher probability of that VC being a man. And so that makes it extremely difficult for any founder who is creating a company or product or service that serves the need of a different type of customer to get their challenge across the table. So I just think that if you don't have access to those types of investors who understand the new challenges that are coming about, you're going to miss the economic opportunity of where the next big businesses are. So diversity for me is not an altruistic kind of calculation. It's one of economics. It's just you want to be able to be where the alpha is going to be. And by nature, <laughs> that's where people are missing things right now, right? That's where the market is not efficient. And it's not going to be there forever. Once all of us start reporting our 2016, 2017, 2018 fund returns, there's going to be a flood of capital that's going to come into the market and everybody's going to try to invest in early stage female fund managers. And then it's a little bit too late. Then there's already efficiencies. It's hard to get into the good ones. The market starts to correct itself. So I think it's a really good wave right now. And I think those LPs and institutions who are doing the work to understand the indicators of who's going to be really successful fund managers going forward are going to reap the benefits. Definitely. That's fantastic. And I'd love to hear a little bit more of your perspective on the funding side. So from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's obviously part of human's thesis to invest in women's health and wellness and femtech. And, and likely many of those companies are women founded. Have you found it from just the deal flow that you all see? Do a lot of those companies have a hard time filling out their rounds? Or what is your perspective on trends there with women founded companies? It's night and day different from two years ago than it is now. I'm a part of a bunch of different syndicates. And so even if the company is pretty early and trying to raise two, $3 million, if a fund doesn't come in and completely lead that round and the whole thing works, then a few smaller funds will come in and take it. And if it's a really unique insight and a strong founder, it gets funded. And I'd encourage people to really think about why they're starting businesses and if there are some that already have gained traction in the same space, then people should think about joining early stage companies. We just invested in a company called Evi, which is a female healthcare company. It's a testing platform. They use testing strips to see vaginal microbiome that how can you prevent infections? How can you 
predict fertility, infertility, things like this. I mean, it's going to revolutionize the way that we think about women's health care. And they need to hire and it's early, early. And so I encourage some women who have complete conviction and have this incredible mission behind things, find a company that's really early and dive in with another founder. Because if you don't feel like you're the one who should found it, you, you don't need to have everybody found a company, right? And you know, if it can align in that way, I think we need to right now consolidate and grow faster the whole industry. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... <laughs> That's one thing. Oh, that definitely answers my question. And I think that's a really great piece of advice for folks who are thinking about founding a company or who might be having a hard time founding one as well. And I also know that you recently wrote an article around the various programs out there to help folks when founding a fund. I know Kaufman and and Transact Global and a couple others were featured in there. So I certainly think there's a lot of resources out there. But yeah, I would love to hear a little bit of your perspective. You've obviously been in venture for quite a long time and have seen a lot of these different programs bubble up. Yeah, another trend I'm very excited about are these operator funds, right? They're a little bit smaller, but they have an operator who knows product really well or knows an industry really well, and they've garnered a following or insights into that industry. And so they see the best companies and they have incredible deal flow. And so an example of this is a woman, Megan O'Connor, who is one of our portfolio founders, and she's now at a big company and she has her own operator fund and she's seeing the best deal flow in education. And she'll put in big checks to the founders because she can do so much and add so much value. And so I think if you are somebody who's thinking about going into venture and you've had a career already, then you say, what can you provide to founders and what gives you an edge to see the best deals in those areas. And even if it's not huge dollar amounts in the beginning, you're starting to show how you can pick stock in people or pick stock in the companies that are going to be the next big companies. And then you can really show your value to investors, you know, LPs down the line, but you can also connect with other funds who who care about that vertical and be a resource for them. And I think that's a a really great way of when people say, I'm thinking about going into venture, there are a couple different ways. And one is, you know, what types of founders do you know? And why do they trust you? And, and why would they take your money? <laughs> why would the best founders take your money? And then another way is post-investment support. So I think people underestimate how fulfilling it is to work with portfolio companies once a fund has made an investment, because really that's the best use of your time as an investor is helping the company post-investment that's going to be the insurance of your investment. So we just recently had a opening for a head of platform and the amount of incredibly talented, diverse folks who applied, it just made my heart sing. I loved it. We ended up hiring this woman, Catherine Henry, who was a founder herself, but she was also in the tech world at Artsy. She knew about investors and art and different asset classes and just like her background was so interesting that I loved a new perspective coming into the venture ecosystem. So I think there's opportunities to break into venture in many different ways. You just have to see where you're creating value. And then, you know, so that's from just breaking into venture. And then when you want to start your own firm, now it is really exciting that there are a lot of programs like the one that you run and Kaufman Fellows. There's also an angel track with first round capital. They've put together something really important too that gives you that experience. So I think there's a lot of resources out there now that were not there five, six years ago. Definitely, definitely. And I think it goes to show like 
our podcast touched on and how you shared earlier, there really is no one path into the industry. And you really just have to focus on where you bring value and how you can help founders and how you can help post investment, like you mentioned. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Awesome. So now we've just got a, a few minutes left unless you're all ready to go over. But last sort of thing here, we've been asking the guests over the last few months, you know, as we're in a very kind of fluid and sort of interesting times is what gets you excited in 2021? And <laughs> the movie is not yet over, but we had a couple more twists and turns, but the world is hopefully, you know, continuing to sort of come out of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that's opened up a lot of sort of interesting opportunities and, and ways to do things differently. So we'd love to just hear about uh, what gets you excited in 2021. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the last 18 months for so many have been really difficult. And I don't want to negate that for everyone. It's been very difficult. But what I do really appreciate about times like this is this paradigm shift that happened in everyone's awareness. You can't put the genie back in the bottle for so many different things. And things have been exposed and spotlights have been put on populations that have been traditionally underserved. And it's just exposed a lot of opportunity. And people think that there's too many venture funds and can this ever end? And is there going to be a downturn? And yeah, there's going to be cycles. But the one thing that continues to happen over hundreds of hundreds of years is that they are cycles and there will be more opportunities that are unearthing themselves. You just have to be riding the wave of who is on that trend, you know, and who's able to see that ahead of the mainstream. And so that's what makes venture really exciting right now. And so I think some of the things that we touched on where wellness was something that was considered pretty soft or woo-woo or whatever is now a necessity. We should not have this toxic work culture. You know, we work hard, we work efficiently, but productivity happens with rest and activity. And I think our culture has lost that. And so the companies that understand that and do it right are the ones who are going to attract the best talent and ultimately going to win. So I guess taking care of your people, that's my prediction for the next five years. The people who take care of their people are the ones who will come out ahead. Cool. So Rachel, any, any sort of closing questions on your end? Or uh, should we ask what her favorite book is? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's our final question that we love to ask our guest is, what is your most recent favorite book? Or it doesn't have to be a recent one, but one that you really love. We did have one guest swap book for TV shows. So that is also on the table. I'll tell you what's on my nightstand right now is a book called Cultish. <laughs> I'm excited to dive into, and it's really the, dissecting the mentality of cults. And I, I think that community building and creating the mentality of that self-belonging is what people are really craving. And so I'm fascinated by all of this kind of, you know, it's not that I want to I be in that, but I, I want to understand the dynamics is what I'm excited about. Fiction, I'm reading Project Hail Mary at the moment. So science fiction is always great thinking about where future is going to be. And then on a personal note, I really do always go back to Principles by Ray Dalio. I think he has outlined a really interesting way of thinking about actions for your life and in his legacy and what's worked for him, but also creating a framework for what you want to take from it and what works for you. I'll do one more. Okay. I know you only wanted one, but Adam Grant's Give and Take is probably one of my favorites because it really outlines what I was talking about. If you're a giver versus a taker, a community full of givers is going to feel so much more abundant than giving to a taker. You feel that. Everyone's felt that black hole. So I think Give and Take by Adam Grant's great. Awesome. Awesome. I've read a couple of those, but looking forward to adding uh, the rest of the list. 
and yeah, so thank you so much again for taking the time to chat today. And it looks like we're ending sort of right on time here. This is great. I really appreciate you having me on. It's a wonderful opportunity and I'm honored. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> well, thanks again so much, Heather. Before we close, wanted to let our audience at home know that if they're interested in learning more about the merits and challenges of joining a fund versus founding your own, Heather recently wrote an article on Forbes that we'll link to in the show notes. But Rachel, could you give the audience a quick recap of what she wrote? Definitely. So in her article titled Joining an Existing Fund versus Starting Your Own, Heather interviewed a handful of VCs, two of which include our former podcast guests, Megan Loist and Paige Doherty who have had to navigate the decision themselves of whether they should become a VC at an existing fund or go out and start their own. A quick overview for the pros and cons to joining an existing fund. The pros include that the capital's already raised. Many of the folks who join a fund have unconventional paths into venture. You can leverage the firm's existing brand, best practices, legacy, resources, and support. However, some of the cons include that you have to adhere to a legacy culture. You may end up working with a less diverse group of founders. You could be discouraged from crafting your own personal brand. There's bureaucracy and likely a traditional ladder to the top. Now for the pros and cons when it comes to starting your own fund, which as you all know is what Heather did. So the pros include that you're able to create a name for yourself from the beginning. You get to set your culture and you decide the mark that you want to leave in the industry. Whereas cons include that you must have connections early to sources of capital, the development of infrastructure and culture is completely on you, and a founder's mentality is a must. If you all are interested in learning more, uh, I definitely encourage you to dig into the article because it really goes into the details of the pros and cons of each. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more venture capital research by visiting goingvc.com and consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.